everybody how's it going thanks for joining me this afternoon or actually this evening sorry a little later than usual i've got a great stream with a great guest that i think you're really going to enjoy so you have these weird moments on the internet where you post something without really thinking much about it you just say oh there's something i recognize that's useful and all of a sudden there's a firestorm that develops around it there, there's a moment like that this week but i think it beyond just being a little bit of twitter drama it reveals a really important moment that we're in a political moment where we have a lot of different factions that the moderate liberals conservatives some of us more on the dissident right all trying to look at different systems and understand things differently so i brought on dave the distributors today to talk a little bit about that thank you dave for coming on uh, my pleasure i apologize for pushing your schedule back this is the the, the wages of the wage cuck life that i'm dealing with so no, I'm I starting late. <laughs> I totally sympathize. I, I remember those days. It's it's uh, yeah, not so long ago. So I, I hear you. I'm glad that you made the time to come on though, because you wrote. It's one of those moments where this thing happened, and I was like, I need to write this up as an essay. I really don't want to write this up as an essay. And then you wrote it up as a perfect essay. I was like, great, awesome. I'll just have Dave on to talk about it. That, that's a much better solution to this problem. Uh, but we're gonna dive into. Uh, uh, this Twitter drama, what is what the system is, or uh, a system is what it does, all this different, uh, all these different ideas, guys. But before we do, let's go ahead and hear from today's sponsor. Hey, guys, let me tell you about today's sponsor, Magic Spoon. Like most of you, I have fond memories of waking up at the crack of dawn, excited to watch all the Saturday morning cartoons. Mom didn't want to wake up that early on Saturday, so that meant that we got to pour a bowl of our favorite cereal for breakfast. They taste great, but of course, they're full of sugar so they're not that healthy, and that's why it was a treat. But now Magic Spoon has an alternative to that cereal that you love that has zero sugar but still tastes great. Magic Spoon has reinvented your favorite childhood cereals to taste great, but each serving contains zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and 4 to 5 net grams of carbs per serving. It's a keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free way to relive those moments watching your favorite cartoons. Plus, it's 140 calories a serving, so you can start that New Year's resolution with something that tastes great. Peanut butter is my favorite, but they have all kinds of fun flavors like blueberry muffin, maple waffle, and birthday cake. So head to magicspoon.com slash Oren to grab a custom bundle of cereal and try the magic for yourself. And don't forget to add their delicious treats for on-the-go snacking. Be sure to use the promo code Oren at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product that it's back with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. So start the new year off right with a delicious bowl of cereal at magicspoon.com slash Oren and use the code Oren to save $5 off. All right. So like I said, I, I saw this post on Twitter explaining this idea that the, the purpose of a system is what it does. I had never seen this terminology before. I know Dave mm. is a computer engineer. He's familiar with his stuff. So he's like, oh, yeah, obviously I had <laughs> never seen it before. But when I saw it, I was immediately like, oh, this is this is like half my content. Half my content yeah. is trying to explain to the average conservative why these systems don't work the way they're described, why they have alternative purposes. I've I'd written pieces on this previously without having the terminology. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, perfect. That That's just a, a, a great encapsulation of a principle that people need to grasp. And all of a sudden this became a firestorm. But before we get into the firestorm, could you explain a little bit what this terminology means? Yeah, so I'm not exactly sure where Posiwid or the purpose of a system is what it does comes from. I'm pretty sure it comes from systems and early machine learning 
but it, it's something that I'm familiar with. It's like, well, these classic rules of engineering you get taught in college, but I'm, I'm very familiar with it as, as an industrial engineer. And the, the idea is, and this is, I think, going to be kind of a theme of, of this live stream, is to really try to take ownership over what systems actually are. So when you deal with a complex system like a machine or an assembly line, there are so many moving parts and there are so many ways that it can go wrong that if this turns into a question about the ultimate source or the intention of what something was designed to do, you'll never get to the bottom of what actually is going on. It'll just be constant recriminations back and forth like you see in politics. So one of the things that engineers, particularly in my field, are, are kind of what's, what's impressed upon us is the idea that the system you put into operation, it does what it does. And it doesn't matter what you intended it to do. It doesn't matter how many different complex things there are and which one went wrong. The total effect is what you're always trying to address. And anything else is kind of a way to skirt ownership over what the system ultimately delivers. And I think the reason why this caught on is, well, and I, there's kind of there's there's a bunch of weird back and forths on Twitter, as I'm sure you're aware. But but the, the reason why it's so use, useful for the right in particular is it just it is very apparent that the opponents uh, of the right, the left, and, and more particularly sort of the liberal centrists, have a very difficult time actually taking ownership over social systems as they are, they kind of deal in these very well-crafted kind of debate club arguments. But when you actually think about what the system is, what it's intended to do, nothing makes sense anymore. They either end up embracing anthropology that's frankly wrong in, in two ways, or in one of two ways, I should say, or they end up in a situation where if they were to take ownership, they they just wouldn't in any realistic situation. And this particularly obviously comes up in, in things like you know disparate impact and concepts of equity inside, uh, you know, in between demographic groups in, in certain systems like academia, especially around things like affirmative action. So that's in a nutshell, I guess. <laughs> No, it, it makes sense. And like I said, I've, I've been I try to apply this so often for a conservative audience because they look at systems. OK, the education system, it's there to teach you reading, writing and arithmetic. And instead, it keeps churning out, you know, dedicated left wing ideologues. You know, the, the Border Patrol is there to keep people out, you know, ostensibly patrol the border and, and control it. And yet it's cutting razor wire and letting people in. You know, we have a military, a Department of Defense that's supposed to defend the United States, but it spends all of its time defending every border but the border of the country it's assigned to defend. And so you have to look at those systems and say, is every one of these systems just inept? Or at some point, do we need to own the fact that these systems do something different than their original uh, than the original design or their, their, their stated purpose? It feels like the left gets a lot of mileage over kind of taking these institutions that once served a specific purpose, or at least labeling them with something you know, that they're supposed to do in one sense, and instead it produces a different outcome. And we're never supposed to notice that different outcome. We're never supposed to notice the fact that the system is actually routinely producing something that benefits particular patronage network, particular groups, particular political agendas, instead of the thing it's stated to do. I know it's a little different from how how you know people like local distance took issue with it mm. but but that's just a basic thing that i try to explain to people 
regularly, but that that's a strategy by the left that seems to continuously work uh, against the right as it stands now. Well, I mean, the, the, the left benefits from fundamentally broken systems that have no solution. And, you know, I, again, I kind of using my example from the article I wrote on my Substack. The, take, for instance, the, the promises of civil rights. This is something that we, we kind of skirt around with when it comes to circles like James Lindsay and Christopher Rufo and local distance. And I know they're not the same person. And I think that you know, I regard them very, very differently because yeah. of the roles they play. But, you know, ostensibly what civil rights promised, specifically the African-American community, but America more generally, was a totally integrated American polity. That's obviously what it promised. And our system is incapable of delivering that, even with massive amounts of racial preferences and affirmative action and disparate impact. And, and the problem is, is that the, the left sort of benefits from the situation where you have a system that can't possibly give people what was promised, because now everybody, in order to participate in, in this civil rights system, has to kind of get on board with the lie. They have to be co-owners with the lie. And so now you're in charge of a hiring committee at Google. Uh, you can't just say, well, there aren't qualified applicants from these demographic groups. Now you have to get on board with this whole idea. Well, we're trying to do this, and we have this, this DEI to to filter out all the biases we know we have because because the, the the fundamental lie is is that these systems would be totally integrated if the standards were completely fair and since you can't admit that totally neutral standards and equal consideration would lead to unequal outcomes you naturally become co-owners of the lie which is exactly the situation the left continuously benefits from because the left benefits, and you said this many times, this is sort of the Nick Land point, when every single answer that can be legitimately entertained in the system is simultaneously bullshit or wrong or a lie, then the only thing that governs a right answer from a wrong one is discourse and litigation and dialectic, mm -hmm. a popularity contest, which bureaucrat pay, give, endorses this idea more than any others. This is like you have entire academic departments that are complete bullshit. They can't generate good results because the questions they are asking are questions that aren't going to have answers this side of total omniscience. So, you know, the, the entire field becomes politicized. And this is this is the same effect that the left. The, the civil rights regime has to be politicized because nobody is willing to stand up here and own the fact that the system of equal consideration is going to lead to massively unequal outcomes. Yeah, but, and this yeah. was no, this was a weird thing because when I had Chris Rufo on the show talking about his book, you know, I specifically said this to him. I, I, I said, "Okay, what happens when we kind of return to this theoretical but didn't actually exist '90s colorblind regime that that mm -hmm. you know you guys all kind of want to wind things back to? What happens when we actually get back to this point and then disparities still exist? Like, yeah. what what will you do?" And his answer was, "Oh, well." We'll just tell people to work harder. Like we'll just tell different groups to work harder. I'm like, what fantasy land are you living in where that's a yeah. political strategy? That's actually the worst solution. I mean, like, so you know, we we all. I'm not going to stop mincing words here, right? We all know that the, the the elephant in the room essentially is the African American community. This is the principal community whose grievances were trying to be addressed by civil rights, and it's also the community that has persistently lower outcomes than we would want them to have. Uh, what what are you going to do when we obliterate the black professional class if affirmative action was actually gotten rid of? 
and and the worst possible answer is it's a meritocracy. So because it's not like people are they going to forget that they're all black? Are they not going to notice that the black professional class has been obliterated? Are, are we going to forget that there was this whole history of racial animosity? Are people going to not remember that we promised an integrated middle class? I mean, they're going to notice this stuff. And so the national discourse is going to be like, well, there's no African-Americans in our elite colleges because they're not, they don't have enough merit. Like they, they weren't morally sufficient enough to do this. That's not going to fly. And and not, not only is it not going to fly, none of these guys who promote meritocracy would say that in public ever. Now, I, I want to cut Christopher Rufo a huge like <laughs> piece of slack here because I understand that he is in a political position and he has to talk to funders and without mincing words again, you know, the boomer class, for lack of a better word. And we have to kind of walk through a bunch of difficult realities. And so it's 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 not surprising that he has to be more politic about this than people who are operating in a pure ideas space like Wokel and James Lindsay. But dude, I, I don't believe this anymore. I don't believe that you're going to institute you know, like Harold, Helen Pluckrose. I don't believe for a second Helen Pluckrose is ready to get up in public and tell the African-American community that the reason why it is effectively not represented in elites is because they don't have enough merit. I do not believe that she's willing to own her ideas like that. And on paper, they all tell me, they all tell me, oh yeah, sure, I read Steven Pinker. Oh yeah, sure, I read The Bell Curve. I understand that these problems could be fundamentally unfixable but there's still a total refusal to own the ultimate outcomes of that system. Uh, you know, there, there's another article I wrote, I didn't send it out because it was a little bit crude, but it was about sort of a, a feminacy in politics. And what I constantly feel like I'm encountering in sort of liberal centrist types is a certain effeminate attitude. Like this is the answer that feels good, but I'm fundamentally not going to own the consequences of this answer. I'm just going to, you know, the system's just going to do, I, I know that this is the right answer TM. So I'm going to slap it on my solution folder. And then when what actually happens, what I know is going to happen happens. I, I just won't be in the conversation when, when that occurs, right. When, when, the, when the difficult fallout happens i just won't be in the conversation so you see this with the progressives and and the and trans trans women in sports oh yeah like the the right answer is that trans women are women and belong in women's sports so when there's a major injury or god forbid a death because of this i guarantee you they won't be in this conversation or you know, I, even steven pinker who i mentioned this is kind of a bugbear i'm uh, not bugbear but I'm really irritated at this guy because he was so formative in my experience as an atheist before. And he, he wrote the book on why the blank slate was incorrect, why, why, why the assumptions of the blank slate were wrong, and how groups could have very different average behaviors for a variety of reasons, some being most likely fundamentally unfixable or unchangeable. And then the majority of the rest of his career is essentially covering up for the mainstream diversity apparatus with, you know, some aside saying, oh, guys, you really shouldn't go too far to the point where the father of genetics, James Watson, gets his Nobel Prize taken away from him for mentioning this inconvenient fact, the same inconvenient fact that Stephen Pinker built his career writing books about. And Stephen Pinker says, Oh wow, guys, you really shouldn't defenestrate the founder of modern genetics. That's not nice. 
And then he goes on and writes a book about how the Enlightenment has solved the problem about open public discourse. And weren't all those Catholics terrible for persecuting Galileo? But now we fix the problem and everyone can just speak their minds in public. Uh, I mean, these guys all have the right ideas on paper. If you if you look at their arguments, uh, well, there are, there are some holes in their arguments and we can get into that. But they have positions that seem like they work in some kind of hypothetical reality, but there's no ownership of the actual consequences of those realities. The, the inconvenient facts about how humans actually behave and how they actually focus on group outcomes is swept under the rug. And all we have is an answer that works for some kind of theoretically perfect system. Uh, this is not going to work in the modern world. And I know I went on for a while there, but no, that's <laughs> fine. No, it's, it's, it's really frustrating because whenever you get in a conversation with these, with the, some of these kind of moderate liberal or, or you know, uh, conservative types, you end up getting this, this kind of hatchling thing where it's like, Oh, I don't, I don't know. Like, what do you mean? You know, what, what could, why could there be different? Outcomes? What could all of this, you know, where, where could this come from? I've never heard oh, of this before. Oh, hey guys, why are you assuming that African Americans are somehow going to perform worse than Asian Americans? Like, why is that your automatic assumption? <laughs> or, or, or just, exactly. or, or there's, or there's this baiting to just like, oh, well, what are you, what are you going to say? You know, like, like, I know you're not allowed to point this out. Like, so I'm just yeah. going to have, I'm going to stand here and wait for you to be a heretic. I'm just exactly. going to keep pushing this conversation over and over again until I finally get to the point where, you know, we, we have to touch this. And since you touched it first, you're, you know, yeah. you're the one who's, who's the bad guy. I get to play the hero who's maintaining the neutrality of the system. And there's also this, there's also, this is thing that's worked for ages for unread Americans. And it, it always struck me as, well, when I was a shit lib and I, I am, I'm, I'm penitent about being a shit lib, but there's always this game the blue Americans play with red Americans. I don't even know if they know we're playing it, but it's like, it, it's sort of, it's uh what is it? The Aesop's fable with, with the crow and, and the fox, right? And the crow has cheese and the fox flatters the crow. Like your, your singing voice must be so beautiful. And, and then the crow tries to sing and the cheese falls out of its mouth. But the, the blue American game is like, Oh, aren't we the greatest country in the world? I mean, you could fix this problem, right? You could fix all these problems. I'm sure you could fix the achievement gap. Like, we're the greatest country in the world, right? You, you kind of uh, flatter the the red American side to thinking that any problem that is like, or, you know, for instance, with immigration, like we could assimilate a million immigrants a year. We could assimilate 3 million immigrants a year. Come on, we're the greatest country in the world. And uh, you, you know that, that you're basically concerned trolling, right? There's a Christian version of this as well, right? Oh, yeah. we, we try to appeal to the perception of, of infinite charity, knowing full well that this charity would require sacrifices that we are not capable of making. We'd have to essentially sacrifice our children's future, which is not, strictly speaking, a Christian sacrifice to make. It, it is, you know, selling your children into slavery. Uh, and, and lying for the sake of, of appearing beneficent is not actual charity um, or actual humility. Uh, but but in, in the moment, in the argument, the invitation by the shit website is always, well, you can be the righteous one. You can be the strong one by by endorsing the dream of, of this fully integrated society, by, by saying we can do it. And, and you know, essentially you endorse the progressive position and you become sort of a co-owner of its implicit lies. And this is sort of the danger with 
you know, again, I, I, Rufo is in a unique position where he essentially has to hold the hands of a lot of people who, who are essentially never going to learn that the 1960s promises are just not materializing. And I, I understand that he's in a delicate political situation. And I want to respect that. But, but for people who are participating in the intellectual side of these conversations on Twitter, if you co-own leftist lies, you will lose ultimately. Because the left does not need to play in truth. If both people lie, the left wins. Because if both people are lying, then you are in a space of pure discourse. You are in a space of pure democracy. In which case, you know, through the Nick Land effect, which I know you've gone over many, many times, there's a question over who will rule, and that will always go to sort of the, the side that is promising more for less. The side that's willing to kind of play along with the lie which is, in this case, the progressive side, or in, I guess in all cases, the progressive side, uh, by definition of what progressive is. And so, uh, you know, I, I don't really know what to say to this point anymore. I, people wanted me to do another essay on liberalism, like 10 unanswerable points for liberals. I've written, vari you've written variations of that essay, I've written variations of that essay a thousand times. I don't know what the response to these points we are making right here are. Uh, all they have is a bunch of unrealistic platitudes about how things should be. And there's no serious dealing, there's no a serious attempt, I think, to address what is actually going on with all of these systems. In some sense, even with a lot of people like Pluckrose and, um, you know, my, my friend Dev, Fat, Fat Short Otaku for the more online types, uh, they, they end up making videos where they just repeat the reactionary arguments, like they, they just recap them, and then they slap on the addendum that, oh, well, we'll fix it all. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and then like appealing to appealing to sort of a sense of heroism again with the self-flattery right and um and i don't know i i think that this is this not a responsible intellectual position you have to be like it can't be like oh the system would work if it was fixed okay but it's not fixed and you can't fix it and right now if you endorse the system you're endorsing it because it does what it does the purpose of the system is what it does and we can either double down on this after 50 years of trying, or we can try to modify our approach to addressing the issues of the African-American community. And, and, you know, I think that it would be better to deal with this problem with set-asides and freedom of association and less in the mode of this, this Equal Opportunities Commission stuff. And I think there's a lot of avenues you could explore to address this problem, but they, they would not be perceived as being liberal. Yeah, it's very confusing because, yeah, again, I, I kind of was talking to Rufo about this and he's like, well, we just create a night watchman civil rights bureaucracy. And I'm like, what? what? <laughs> like the entire purpose of this thing is to reach into every interaction. Like it has to to work. That That's kind of the whole point. Like you're trying to rewrite the fundamental laws of human organization. And in order to do that, you have to take charge of basically every interaction that people have, public and private, to, to alter this. And you know that, like, there, there's no that's there's no version of this thing that's a night. That's like having a, a night watchman central planning committee, right? Like the whole purpose of this organization of the of this bureaucracy is to try to control everything uh, associated with its topic. 
And that means mm-hmm. you're going to have to reach into all these different, uh, you know, government organizations, all these different standards, all these banks, everything on a constant basis. It, even if you try to do the based version of this or the colorblind version of this, you're never going to reduce this down to some kind of, you know, skeletal overwatch overwatch organization that's just not going to happen but they can't imagine a, a, a scenario where the system is eliminated in fact they seem to be blown away that anyone would even suggest it well i mean we have to be careful about over applying posiwid posiwid because i think initially and think things never happen for just one reason right the, the, sure. When they come out of an oligarchy, there are true believers, there are moderates, there are hardliners, and there are cynical people trying to exploit this. So, you know, I think that what what Christopher Rufo has in mind is is sort of like the propaganda version of civil rights that was sold to white America, right? Which was fundamentally different than the propaganda version that was sold to black America. The propaganda version of civil rights that was sold to black America is civil rights will replace the opportunities that your community lost due to the devastating impact of drugs, the sexual revolution, and the decline of urban safety that happened in the mid to late 60s. This is going to be a fix for that. And hypothetically, and and actually not hypothetically, definitely this was sold to African-Americans, you will be on average as rich as the white community. Civil rights was not sold to be like, oh, guys, guess what? You're lucky. White people get to move into your neighborhoods now. That was not how it was sold to the African-American community. It was sold as as an invitation to share in middle-class wealth and middle-class prestige. And I think, you know, when Rufo pulls this stuff out, about this night watchman civil rights bureaucracy he he's repeating sort of the the propaganda lies that were told to uh to white america and the thing is is that uh you know i think there's a lot of people who believe them in 1967 or 1963 or 1953 but slowly over time it was very very apparent that this could that the two visions of civil rights were fundamentally irreconcilable and the civil rights bureaucracy is at this stage designed to do exactly what you are saying. It's designed to reach into every element of people's lives to fundamentally reverse anthropological realities that are hard-coded into human DNA. Uh, To a lesser degree, potential differences between demographic groups, and to a larger degree, people's just consciousness of ethnic affiliation, there's no way that you're going to be able to essentially have no African-Americans in elite institutions. And for the African-American community not to notice that or react politically. And when they do, there's going to have to be a new story about what it means to be an American and what it means to have dignity in America. Or there's going to have to be some kind of, pardon the pun, new deal for everybody in America. But again, we have to do this song and dance that, that you know, people like uh, James Lindsay do. And uh, I think that this song and dance where, where you where you kind of feign ignorance about the ultimate consequences of implementing our policies, that's very transparent to young people. That's very, that was transparent to me with the original crop of neoconservatives that I encountered when I was a progressive, that that they weren't really interfacing with reality, that this was, it was it's so obviously something that you're not owning, that that immediately, that it immediately kind of broadcasts itself. And I wouldn't be surprised that this is 
a large reason why conservatism is just so unattractive for for younger people. So I know you're all about trying to reach out and have have discourse <laughs> sometimes against uh, your better judgment, but I uh, I appreciate the dedication to this. Like at some point, do you think it's possible? Because I've had multiple long form conversations with local distance at this point. Mm -hmm. I know you have had one as well. And I just, and, and when he came back and immediately was like, well, you're just doing critical theory. Uh, <laughs> you know, that was his response to me, to me posting this was like, well, well, you're just doing critical theory. This is what critical theory is like. This is, it's like, do you, do you only have like a hammer? Is that why this has to be the nail? Or do you genuinely not understand the difference here? Or, or, or is that like, was I just doing critical theory? Like, is there any way that these guys are able to, because it feels like the only, there's only two realities that are, uh, that you're allowed to evaluate in their world. You can evaluate the one where they're correct. And it's just about returning to classical liberalism. It's just about winding things back a little bit. Maybe we make a tweak here or there about the promises that were offered in certain systems or those kind of things. But in general, it's about returning to these, these original uh, settings or, you look at the things the way that the left does that, Oh, well, these disparities have to be created by the system. And those are the only two options you, you, there, there's no, there's no other way you can evaluate this. And so anything that's not returning back to uh, kind of classical liberalism can only be then critical race theory. How, how do you even break through that? Yeah. I'm, I, I don't, I, I intellectually, I kind of can sympathize because the Gramscian, Theory. I mean, he, Gramsci literally bases it on Moscow, right? Like you can see sort of the, the, the post-Gramsci left as being a way to incorporate political realism into political movements in a way that it hadn't necessarily before. And in, in some sense, the early 20th century was this golden age of uh, hyper-idealized politics that, that's slowly been fading out over the course of our lives. Um, you know, ultimately... I don't know. I mean, I think to a certain degree, sort of intellectual laziness to call all realism critical theory. I mean, obviously that's the case. But I, I, I think if I were kind of to steel man local and Lindsay, I think they believe that liberalism is kind of a religious principle that we have to fight for against sort of the, the, the forces of political realism that are trying to drag it down. And in a sense, I kind of, I, I kind of sympathize with that, right? But it's not, <laughs> theory is supposed to describe what actually occurs, not what we want to have happen, not what we would ideally wish to happen. And this seems to be kind of, this is a distinction that seems to be continuously lost on a lot of the liberals, is they, they speak in complete idealisms. And, and so you have, when I was in my conversation with Wokel, I, I, numerous times I would just bring up sort of uncomfortable realities about our alliance with certain nations, about how people conceptualize ethnicity and group loyalties, about how borders have to work, about demographic change, about group differences. And every time I brought up one of these, I mean, these are just measurable. You can just go outside and measure the numbers on any of these things or just observe reality, observe humans as they are. Every time I brought one of these, these realities up, I woke up smart enough not to just flat out accuse me of anything, but, but I could tell that he graded against these realities as if he was grading against uh, a sort of a religious heresy or something like that. Uh, 
he he was offended that this should that these realities could be used as reasons for tearing down kind of kind of the religious project of an open society and you know i i i can't i can't express how much i emotionally sympathize with that while at the same time kind of intellectually <laughs> disagreeing with it you know i i kind of i kind of sympathize with a person who laments the end of liberalism but but it ended because our society became a type of society that could no longer sustain things like this at the level we we have been through the decline of things like religiosity and the death of God. And once God, I don't think God is dead, but once the concept of God is dead in your society, then political realism is the reigning law of the land. That is what the system is. It's a system of political realism. It's a system of who, whom, as Lenin would have, or as Schmidt would put it, friend, enemy. That's what political realism is, and all other concepts of loyalty to principles written in actual English language, as like you know the the our original Protestant legal autists would 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 love of of our, the founding fathers generation. All that goes straight out the window, and it has it's it's been a joke for our elite for at least thirty years, and that's the world we live in. And if your world does not, if your theory of liberalism does not interface with that theory, I don't care if you think you were working towards this Christian utopia of liberalism sometime in the next hundred years when we can fix all of the underlying problems. You need a political theory for right now when real politics are going on and not hypothetically idealized politics. Yeah, and this is a lot, I think, of, of what Yarvin talked about. I mean, Yarvin picked up, interestingly enough, he picked up this language in his his kind of current, uh, uh, his current essay, his his recent essay, and he you know, spoke about Rufo and and kind of the fact that he's unwilling to remove these things. Uh, kind of kind of shows a, a, an unseriousness about the moment. And again, I'm not trying to bag directly on Rufo here that he he was a little un, more unkind to Rufo than I would have been. But then they've They've exchanged uh, pleasantries back and forth a few times at this point, so they're they're both firing broadsides. Uh, I think a little bit. I don't think Rufo's job is to be an intellectual. I think Rufo's job is to be a diplomat and an activist, and he he fundamentally has to be held to different standards than people who are like Yarvin. But that's just my two cents, right? Sure, and and, and you're right about that. The only again, my only problem is then you have to be you have to be less. You you need to be clearer about what your activism is leading to. I'm I'm 100 with you that there's a different approach and that you have to couch things differently. You have to speak a different language. Uh, I hundred percent understand that. But if your goal is, is not again, kind of the, the demolition of this system, uh, then that's a problem, right? Even if you, I understand you have to be more careful about the way maybe you approach that or the way you couch that. But, but if you're, if that's not your goal, then, then I think there's an issue anyway, but, the, the, but, my the, the key of his essay was the Simon Says thing, right? Because that gets to the heart of it. Uh, once your legal reforms are just appending, but now we're really going to do it to all the existing laws, you know you're not dealing with reality. The reality cannot possibly be a problem in law or a problem that the legislator has not commanded the bureaucracy to do this. Because we've commanded them multiple times to do something different than what they've done, and they have never complied with this. So the, the idea, like the 18th century legal autism way of looking at the world where every man is as good as his bond, and when you sign your name, you sign away your soul, uh, this belongs to a world of, of a Christian world that this is not evident right now. 
in the modern world, force is power and power is power. And we had to deal with that. Do you think that, you know, again, as somebody who is constantly trying to, to reach across the aisle, constantly trying to have conversations, do you feel like the kind of these moderate liberals or classical liberals are closer to understanding these things than maybe a disaffected leftist or, or a Marxist or something like that? I mean, do, does their does their investment in the system and their commitment to making it work uh, make, make them harder to reach, even though it feels like politically they're closer to a position like your your yours or mine? Yeah, I mean, the problem is, well, I mean, the, again, there is not always one type of person who does this. Uh, th this this group of sort of centrist liberals that that we kind of know and love, uh, it, they're oftentimes a lot harder to reach than the left because they fundamentally feel that they're invested in a certain kind of system working. And they don't want to have that system. They don't want to essentially declare bankruptcy on this entire mode of thought. Uh, the difficulty is, is that kind of very conservative mode of thinking does make them think a lot more like the donor class for conservatives and, and sort of the boomer class generally, right? The, the boomer class is highly invested in the idea that America works a certain way, that, that America works for their children like it worked for them, but it doesn't. And, and I don't know, I, I think that waking someone out of that illusion is actually a lot harder. Leftists usually have... Uh, they oftentimes have sort of sharp grievances, but but ones that they're much more willing to be forthright about. And they're obviously less invested in the system as a whole. So oftentimes they're able to entertain more radical ideas, if not for some kind of temperamental disposition that puts them on the other side of the friend-enemy distinction. Uh, really, the, the liberals going forward, they're just fighting against time at this stage. Their coalition, their arguments make less and less sense every year. Uh, they don't have any coherent answers to the questions either brought to them by the left or brought to them by the right. That's one thing we have in common on the left and the right, uh, the distant left and the distant right. And uh, I think their base is fading away too, because I think increasingly young people are not buying these answers because they're transparently apologetic and not and not realistic and, and lack of ownership. But my great fear is that they're going to persist in this delaying tactic just long enough to really cause some serious damage because we can only take a step forward if the funder the funding class and and the boomers get behind projects that actually try to address the problems as they exist. And no one really wants to do that. It was a really weird moment. You know, I, I went on this uh, debate on Break the Rules with Peter Bogosian, and I know that you're familiar with Peter, that you've had discussions with him before uh, way back. And and I went in there prepared to have like this knockdown drag out. OK, why does liberalism work anymore? Is there any hope for it? You know, I had brushed up on all of my different thinkers and I walked in and it was very odd. There was a Bogosian was was almost defeated before I walked in the room. He, he every time I, you know, he's like, Oh, well, what do you think's wrong with, with liberalism? Where do you think it's failed? I start listing off many of the things that we've, you know, we've, we've all talked about many times. 
And his response to almost all of them was uniformly, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I think that's kind of become obvious. Yes, that's clearly the case. Mm. And even though we walk through like so many of these different issues and he seemed to agree that these failures were obvious uh, in pretty much every area, he still constantly came back to like, but we've got to make this work, right? But like, I still fundamentally believe in liberalism. It's like, why? You spent an hour telling me everything wrong with it and have no no way to address any of these problems but the answer is still yeah but i've still kind of gotta i gotta hang in there at this point i don't know well this makes total sense to me uh, you know peter bergoshin of 2023 i know peter bergoshin of 2013 and the peter bergoshin of 2013 was breathing fucking fire I, I remember him when i lived in portland uh you know i i was you know said hello to him a few times probably doesn't remember me right but i went to all of his lectures and we were ready to tear down religion, tear down God for not being rational. We were doing street epistemology, all that stuff. At that time, I was on the Christian side of the debate. And I was kind of, uh, you know, seeing how it felt to be on the other side of the guns for once. So it was very entertaining. Uh, but, you know, what what has the atheist finally encountered is the death of his own God. Uh, Peter Bergoshian and, and indeed all liberal progressives were convinced that liberalism would be the god that essentially captured the entire world. If liberalism dies, then we are in the bellum omnis contra omnis, the war of all against all. Uh, we, we are indeed in the Nietzschean world of chaos, uh, the will to power. And that is, if that is what atheism deliver to the world ultimately when it removed God, as Nietzsche predicted, uh, then the progressive project has essentially failed. And atheism as a project will be remembered in history as a failure and as a social pathology that brought a civilization to its knees, as it has in all ages in the past. Yep. And I, I, I mean, I don't know, how do you react to news like that? Uh, how do you react to kind of an upset his his god i mean he set out to kill the christian god he killed his own <laughs> and uh yeah i i mean i i kind of i i kind of feel i kind of i i deeply sympathize with him right but but the thing is let, let's say peter Brigosian and the rest of the liberals i mean for woke it's easier because he's a christian right but let's say that they they embrace real politics and they embrace a world without liberalism well well then you have to agree to the fact that that your moral system only works in the context of a certain religion carried forward by a certain people. So you have to be loyal to that religion and that people. And if they don't thrive, then all your moralism and arguments don't matter a hill of beans to the other people and the other religions. Maybe there are some similarities. Maybe we can come to some commonalities. But those commonalities are not going to be based on anything like reason for which all people have universal access to. Those commonalities will be based on commonalities of moral presupposition that are ultimately located in commonalities of religious revelation, like C.S. Lewis talked about in the Tao. And, and so it's like, okay, our gods are similar, therefore we can have peace. Does not sound like Peter Bergosian's idea that you could argue everyone into rationality when meeting them on the street. Uh, this is not that world. It never has been that world. And, uh, you know, once we say that, then all of a sudden, uh, the world we recreate is a world, I mean, it's like our, our Reno and haven't finished his book yet, but it's literally the return of the strong gods. Mm -hmm. Now, all of a sudden, virtues like loyalty, like piety, like constancy, 
like dedication and commitment, all of those virtues in the classic world that were kind of shoved into the corner and that were kind of treated as a fascination of the previous time. Those become primary for how you run a society and how you measure men's worth inside of a society. And when that happens, then other questions, this is also the problem I say, I say too, that the reason why this can't happen, right, is because uh, if you started, I don't know, I mean, there's sort of a, a sweater effect, right? If I were to get rid of this idea that rational liberalism could just rule the entire world through discourse and dialectic and democracy, once I get rid of that, then all of a sudden you have to ask questions like, okay, so if we're a nation and our nation's power is 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 sort of in the people, uh, then why did we get rid of the borders? <laughs> then why did we send the jobs away? How, how did, how did if we're not necessarily entering into a world of scientific progress, how did we destroy San Francisco? How did we destroy New York? How come an enormous percentage of the children these days are born to single parents and have destroyed families? How come an entire generation of kids is addicted to porn? And every one of those questions has an answer that essentially indicts the liberal and progressive camp at some level, historically, through the past 20th century. This cannot be a small change. This has to be a moral revolution because when you look at the 20th century through this new lens, I don't think it makes Hitler or Stalin or Lenin look good, but it makes a lot of the heroes we had in the 20th century look like deeply conflicted characters uh, who were as wrong, wrong about as many things as they were right. And certainly they, they do not tell the story of progress. And so what we're talking about in that stage is a total moral inversion of what people consider valuable and what people want to invest in in, 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 in their time on this earth. And, and imagine, imagine living your entire life and investing in things in, 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 in the way that the 20th century told you to. Think of all the people who didn't have families or, or who may have broken ties with their families in the name of these concepts. And then it turns out that, well, actually, your family was the most important thing all along. Your nation actually mattered. The territorial integrity of your country was valuable. The actual land that, where you built your cities was something that was sacred. And the churches that you tore down and desecrated were the, the substructure that all morality was based on you're invalidating entire people's lives at that stage. You know, I think a lot of ruling classes have fallen due to failed promises. I don't think ours would be unique in that way. Would, would ours be unique in that it got mm, several generations of people at what could arguably be the height of material comfort in civilization to just hand over everything that makes life worth living in a, in a, in a death spiral. Like I, I, I know there's, I know there's a lot of, again, an, a, other civilizations that probably failed due to decadence, but it does feel like ours is a very particular situation where the, the desperate need to disenchant the world, uh, robbed people of ge ge a generational contact, a, a place in the chain of being that simply cannot be replaced. Even, you know, the, they're, other other people went through tragedies because their civilizations fell, but it feels like our our generations will be particularly bankrupt when the system is shown to be a lie. Yeah, I mean, that's for sure. I mean, 
increasingly the the political dynamic is just between life and illusion uh for instance you know uh my friend bennett and i never pronounced the last part of this name properly the phylachery or whatever yes uh the bennett of the exit group as i like to call him he had a conference that was a pro-natal conference hey guys Everybody who wants to solve the problem about why no one is having kids anymore, which is literally threatening virtually all developed nations with bankruptcy, let's all try to solve this problem. The attempt to solve that problem is coded as far right wing by all of the mainstream publications that covered it. This is absolutely nuts. Uh, not, not, not like Bennett's ideas individually, just the attempt to solve it. And there's there's no equivalent to solve the the birth rate crisis on the left. Uh, the, the left is entirely consumed with maintaining illusions for as long as they can go on. And increasingly, this will be the dynamic that plays out in politics. Uh, illusion versus reality. The right is the party of reality. The left is the party of illusion. Uh, the left is the party of, of sort of, of, of pleasure and and of of putting off the hard decisions for another day the right is about actually having humans live on this earth and, and not perish by our own means or have our civilization collapse and enter into a period of chaos and i, I think that fundamentally once i think this dynamic will solidify as the boomers in particular leave the scene then then this dynamic between the, the party of the real and the party of the unreal will become more prominent but I mean, being the party of the real is not a guarantee of victory because yeah. of the incredible power uh, of of the illusions that that we've created for ourselves, both political and technological. I think that's right. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and pivot over to the questions of the people. But before we do, Dave, could you tell everybody where to find your excellent work? Um, so I have a YouTube channel called the unpronounceable name, the distributist, which I picked before I knew it would be a YouTube channel. And I have a Substack called, um, Fiddler's Green and Fiddler's Green at Substack.com. And, uh, yeah, that my written work is there and the, the videos are on my channel going back to 2016. Excellent. Yeah. Be careful what you name yourself on the internet, guys. You never know if you'll have to live the rest of your life hearing it. So, uh, <laughs> well, you picked an awesome name. I have I, to say, I did you know. <laughs> All right. Uh, Paul a here says great stream leftists would agree and just say that the purpose of the system is imprisoning, impoverishing black people. Yeah. That was Wilkel's point when he picked out my tweet was to say, Oh, well, this is how they would analyze the system and they would simply say that that okay that that is what the system does and so therefore its purpose and you kind of address that in your essay right like you know well i think Wogel's specific uh thing was like well if you know if if iq tests keep you know certain uh groups from not getting jobs and the purpose of them is to keep certain groups from getting jobs and you know expecting that I, i guess to be the gotcha the the hammer to drop on everyone i i don't know what to say if you run a system that uses an IQ proxy for employment, you're going to discriminate against groups of people that have lower IQs. Like that's statistical reality. And if you have a fair criminal justice system, you will discriminate against groups of people that commit more crimes. Now, I don't think that that detracts from those groups' dignity. 
I think we have a responsibility to make sure that less people get arrested and thrown in jail to begin with, but to pretend like that's not the ultimate outcome of our system or to sweep it under the rug. Like the Africa, like these communities aren't going to not notice. Yeah. Maybe they just won't know. Guys. That seems maybe to be the like, theme. Like yeah. maybe they just won't know. Maybe we'll just, everyone will ignore it. We'll just go back and ignore it. Nobody will know. Right. No, no, no one will know that, that African community, African American communities have more crime than white communities. It'll be like the eighties when we didn't talk about it. Yeah, that, that does seem to be the strategy. Bolero393 uh, says, can't go back to French Prince now that Jade is entangled with her son's friend. The civil rights regime always slaps uh, uh, slaps the face of natural inequalities. Uh, yeah, I I don't know that I, I have enough knowledge of the Fresh Prince uh, the, lore. I can speak it. to this. this the, oh, French, okay. the Fresh Prince was the perfect show. Because originally in the 1980s, you had the cause, like, I think the original black show was like the Jeffersons or something like that. I never saw that show, right? But I remember the Cosby show. Yeah. And, uh, you know, my parents used to watch the Cosby show. And I, even back then, I knew I was watching shitlib propaganda. I, I, I wouldn't have had words to describe it. But it's just, it just basically like every white liberal's fantasy of what a black family is. Like the, the father's a doctor and the mother's a lawyer. <laughs> and and he's constantly delivering like good old fashioned Jordan Peterson lectures to his kids, right? And and you know that's bullshit propaganda. And it wasn't—I don't even think it was very popular. Maybe it was popular among black people, but I, I seem to remember it selling more to a white audience. And then finally, in the '90s, they got to the Fresh Prince, which is perfect because in the Fresh Prince, the 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 black family is incredibly professional. They're very rich. But at the same time, the dynamic that plays out is like the Will Smith character is like from the streets, like he's from Philadelphia and a bad area. And so the tension is this is sort of a fish out of water, like black people are learning their lessons and becoming incorporating the best elements of both black and white culture. And of course, Will Smith was very charming and, and masculine back in those days. So it was like the perfect mix, right? You'll, you'll have the best of both worlds. Uh, but man, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. It's a, it's an illusion. See, I was a family matters guy. I remember, <laughs> uh, I remember Carl Winslow. Yeah. That was a working class neighborhood uh, though. Though again, the idea that I think it's supposed to be in Chicago and the idea that yeah. a Chicago cop could buy like a, you know, a, a five bedroom, two story, uh, house and support like what four kids or something, uh, uh <laughs> another time to be sure that that was the most, uh, fantastical part of that, uh, of that show. Yeah, I always remember. Um, yeah, yeah, like the house always looks the same between that and Full House too, right? Like you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they all had exactly the same sitcom yeah, house. Yeah, I, I've been in those boxes by the bay and everything. They don't look like that on the inside. But yeah, I, the, the Steve, if only we had more Steve Urkels, we would solve the the, the problems of, uh, of 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 race relations. Well, oh, I just okay, I just figured out what he was saying. Jada Pinkett Smith, uh, Will Smith's wife. Okay, that's. Uh, I think she was in Fresh Prince too. Wasn't was she? she? Okay, see, I again, I didn't, I didn't watch much of that one, so I just, I don't know, but. Uh, I know she's in the Matrix and stuff. Um, oh yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, Kate J says, uh, "Future phase of DEI could uh, be uh, to make a uh, way for our replacements. Non-white U.S.-born citizens will be left in the dust as well." In the name of critical race theory, thoughts. Uh, civil rights am amendment, right? Or oh, I did. Theory? Yeah, sorry. Yes, yeah, civil rights amendment. My bad. Um. Well, look, I mean, no one has suffered more in the post-civil rights regime. Well, I, I shouldn't, I feel like I'm say, being like a shit lip if I said no one suffered more than African-Americans. But I mean, I, I won't use superlatives, but they have suffered quite a bit. And looking at the communities that used to exist in inner cities before the 1960s, 
you know, it, it, it's sad that they're gone now and they're only going to suffer more now that we're letting millions and millions and millions of people into this country with no plan to support them. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, but I, I don't know. I mean, the, the, I, I don't think that's going to necessarily attract the, the African American community at the Republican party that that probably will not happen short of some cesarean figure coming to just explode the party dynamics and rebuild it in, in a different way. I'm trying to remember if it was Caldwell or Thomas Sowell who said this, but it was something to the effect of, you know, originally the, the racial dynamics in the United States allowed the black community to have a particular space in, in the culture and allowed them to make certain demands because of, uh, kind of the way they had been treated in the past, but it was but it was justified because it was basically a a dialogue between two groups, right? And they they were simply asking for dignity inside a space where they were really only one of two major groups. But the immigration yeah. shift completely destroyed that dynamic, and they're you know the again all of their causes got caught up with the causes of every other immigrant group that came into the country. And eventually their voice simply became one of many and their cause was simply used. It kind of pimped out to all of these other grievance factories. And therefore there is no way to kind of cogently have that conversation anymore because there's too many voices all kind of screaming the same language, but only one of them ever had any legitimacy to it in the first place. And now you can't single out and address it. It's conquest's third law in action. Like it doesn't just happen to white people, right? I mean, the, the managerial class that managed the, the activist wing of, of the African-American community eventually became people who just served themselves. And it served that activist class to become part of a rainbow coalition uh, of eternal grievances and, and to never directly address the problems of separating out separate economic zones so that uh, Africans could thrive in, in their own areas and with specific set outs for them which I, I don't know if that would necessarily work as a solution in the modern era, but it should be something that we should explore, certainly. Ronald McNuggets says, prioritizing merit requires forced uh, dissolving uh, uh, any sex, cultural, religious, or ethnic-specific institutions that allow connections between similar people. This is what the USSR and civil rights did, united in mass economy. Uh, can you put that one up again? Okay. Yep. Yeah. Prioritizing merit forces dissolving. I mean, hmm. well, I, I guess so. I mean, prioritizing merit above sort of subgroups inside a nation is what all sort of cesarean figures do. This is something that Napoleon very famously did was to try to turn France into whoever gets the job done is, right. is the new aristocracy type deal. And, and so this is, and you know, this was true in some, in some periods of Rome, this is also something that was used. So I, I don't know. Certainly merit it, itself is, is not suspect, but th the problem is, is that, you know, th this idea that we can completely divorce merit from a particular religious worldview is kind of nuts to me. I, it's something that the founding fathers would have never, like they would have understood that merit and virtue only makes sense in context to a certain class of religious views. But, but I think this really is a product of imperialism and, and 
I mean, first the British Empire and then, then the global American Empire, there's this idea that that somehow we discovered the, the Rosetta Stone of all morality and our system was just the system for everybody. And uh, that was a political formula for a while and then eventually it kind of became autonomous and, and ate these empires alive. You know, it's interesting. Um, Christopher Lash actually makes kind of the same argument that Ronald is making here in Revolt of the Elites. He says that kind of the drive to merit meant to the kind of skim all of the talent out of these different communities and rather than bettering the communities in which it was originally you know, the firmament where it was it, it arose from. Instead, it's all kind of skimmed off the top and pushed into these coastal university towns and, and into uh you know kind of kind of the iq shredder uh you know ver version of this uh and i think this is also kind of what charles murray is saying in a crude iq way when he you know writes something like like coming apart and a sort of mating and so i don't know i feel like um I, I feel like there i don't know if you can avoid this like i said i'm not i'm not against merit but uh th there is a point here that that constantly emphasizing merit uh, and, and ele elevating people out of their current class and focusing on kind of the ability to climb out of current situations rather than better, better them does have a, a problem when it comes to the way we kind of organize society. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what the African-American community I mean, like all these people that we complain about constantly who are staffing these DEI bureaucracies, just imagine what they could do to reform their own communities. And they would have done that back in the day. They would have been, right. they would have been like, they, instead of building Google, another DEI curriculum, they would be organizing their, their own neighborhoods or their own town and, and fixing the actual problems there on the ground. And people would have listened to them. Yep. You know, because they would have been, they would have been seen as the most meretricious for their people. Uh, TK here says Christ is King. Amen. Thank you very Amen. much. Uh, we've got uh, Casey Stark says keep it uh, keep up, guys. Preach. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I am. So I, I hardly let you get a word in edgewise. Are I, so, yeah. uh, I, I get to talk on my show all the time, buddy. <laughs> by all means, it's you know there there's certain people you're not Yarvin, you know, like yeah, yeah, I, yeah. you know there's I I get to talk back, but I know there's going to be 10, 15 minute breaks and it's nice. You know, it's nice. Everyone wants <laughs> to sit back and, and get to, get to listen. You know, uh, I watch your live streams. I enjoy them. I know, I know uh, what the game is. I need to get uh, back to that too. <laughs> yeah. Glow in the dark here says merit. Uh, what we need equal, uh, uh, merit. What we need equals virtuous action acts. Uh, want to know something funny. The president from idiocracy has more merit than most politicians. He at least wanted what was best for his people, even if uh, he had to go. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to. What was the name of the president? Uh, uh, Mountain Dew Camacho. Camacho. Yes, Camacho. Yeah. No, br brilliant, uh, brilliant movie. Mountain Dew Camacho. Yes. And uh, here, here's one thing that Mountain Dew Camacho has going for him is that uh, he is a lion and not a fox. Yes. He's a lion because he can't be a fox. And so he has very, very basic political instincts. And uh, that's what that's what humans need. They need, you know, being right is meaningless without the masculinity to actually take ownership over a situation. And you know, I, I've been trying to get a serious article out, and both times I've been interrupted with uh, with kind of these online debates that I want to do essay responses to. But you know, you know intellectually being right is just not enough. It's not even half of what's needed in leadership. 
Life of Brian says, uh, we essentially have diversity prison experiment where the DEI commissars play the guards. Yeah, that's you're, you're not wrong about that, sir. I just wait till you get uh, trans women in women's prisons and look at really <laughs> interesting. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was saying that that would, that would be a very, if we had a reasonable academy, uh, I would be, I, I could write, I could be, write four PhD theses over the course of the next 10 years when we introduce the cohort of uh, late onset trans identifying criminals into women's prisons, because there's at least four PhD theses worth of anthropology in that experiment. I'm speaking like a fox now, but but go on. <laughs> Max Woodbridge says, uh, hey, uh, big fan, but to be honest, I'm always left wondering what exactly your concrete proposal is. I tend towards Lindsayism because he clearly articulates it, the U.S. Constitution. I understand your critiques, but you're light, uh, you're light on proposals. Uh, we hear this a lot, Dave. Why don't Why don't we just have a ten point plan? Why don't we just return to the Constitution? It's that simple, right? Yeah, I the the the, the sort of simple like return to the Constitution stuff is. So my friend who appears on some YouTube channels uh, and it's pretty on, I don't know if he's ever appeared on mine, but I know Mullen in real life uh, hunger. He goes by hunger, the dime merchant. He usually appears on Yiz's channel, another YouTuber. And he, he put it very succinctly when I saw him last, he said, there are no honest, easy answers. There, there are no honest, easy answers. Now I, I could lay out things that I could do right now as as a dictator of the united states i could list off policies but i cannot i can't come up with you like an, uh, an automated system of rules that will handle all future eventualities that is not possible in highly chaotic times i can i can tell you what our moral priorities would be i could tell you what in this instance what the priorities would be politically to stop things from getting worse but I can't give you what Carlisle called a government by esteem. I can't give you a set of rules that you can whip out and then automatically answer like chat GPT, every political problem that comes across your table. Because political problems are, the real political problems, not like the fake ones we deal with in high school civics classes, are complex and they deal with a complex application of value. So I, mean, I can tell you that the priority should be God and humanity's survival and then pursuant to those, your own individual people and communities survival. And in that process, we could talk about any number of plans, probably starting with solving the demographic crisis that we're currently experiencing, but going on to many, many more things. But there's not going to be an automatic way to run the government by steam by giving you five paragraphs of logic and saying that this applies in all circumstances. Right. Like I can give you some pretty concrete answers. Like, yeah, there needs to be a moratorium on immigration. There needs close to close the borders. Yeah. Yeah. Close the borders. There needs to be the, the demolition of, uh, you know, the civil rights bureaucracy. Like, yeah, I can remove the you... universities. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, salt, salt the, the earth on which yeah. they, they stand. Right. Like close the border. Like you can just yeah. go on, like make build, like have more housing project, do a job creation project near those housing projects to build, to make new cities that actually have income coming in through jobs and not through handouts. Like that would complete, that would be like an, in this five minutes, we've created essentially a new New Deal plan that would completely redo the economy of America. And all those changes would be positive. But but it would not be like an automatic way to handle all governments at all times. Yeah. The, the, the whole problem that we've run into is that we entered an age of ideology. Instead of caring about 
specific peoples and their needs and understanding them on a, in a real level. Instead, we try to sketch out an ideology that could universally be applied. Uh, and that, that if you're just trying to return to that kind of, you know, oh, here's the neutral, here's the, the, the neutral ideology institutions that will once again write the ship. I don't know what to tell you. I do not have that plan for you because it's not real. And it never was. Uh, Ronald McNuggets says, it seems like the current merchant oligarchs prefer slow decline because uh, changing civil rights could result in substantial losses of wealth for them. And well, not just wealth, everything, right? Yeah, As Dave would. laid out, like when this when this whole thing comes apart, people are going to have some questions. And, yeah. uh, they, and and money might not be the only thing that, that you lose in that scenario. I, I hope we listen to Yarvin. I know people are angry at him. They're, it seems like they're angry at him every other week. But I really hope people listen to Yarvin to understand that as we, I mean, it, I think it was less true five years ago, but increasingly are going to encounter a, a set of kind of penitent leftists that kind of just want to land this the ship. And and if you go up these penitent leftists and talk about how you're gonna, you know, have day of the noose or whatever, I'm sorry that's on your channel, but like if you if you start doing that bedposty stuff, I mean you're ruining an opportunity to actually save your community and our community a lot of pain that's coming our way. Max Woodbridge here says, can we just uh, can we not just pair the C the Civil Rights uh, Act back and remove the affirmative action? Maybe not ideal, but realistically attainable as opposed to the quest for the perfect. I mean, what does that look like? Right. Well, so I, I'm going to reread the last part of my essay. The so, As far as the African-American community was concerned, civil rights was a promise of community wealth to restore the wealth that was lost to the decline of urban America in the 19 in the earlier 1960s without that piece you're screwing them over and, and, and because if you just scale back affirmative action there are going to be questions that that knock on after that and i'm sure scaling back affirmative action and saying we've achieved racial equality would work out great for asian america and white america and and, and probably most of our, our elites too wouldn't mind that uh but it, it creates a huge political problem for these communities that were actually promised things collectively humans especially humans in a multi-ethnic democracy or a multi-ethnic society, always perceive things in terms of collective standing. There's this great article by Jay Burden a few days ago about, we said, uh, social emotional patronage. Like Most patronage, and this is, this is critical, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sad it didn't get more attention because he's a relatively new creator and a younger guy, so people should look for him. But he, this is a critical insight, and I think I've like always. Everyone's kind of thinking these things, but he put it in just the right way. Um, the the thing is, is that with with these these patronage models, the, the most important thing. So you know, if you've ever been around trans people, they'll say this thing like, "Trans people are valid. Trans people are valid." You know, what I, in one of my many many talks with them, you know, trans people are valid, gay people are valid. Like, okay, are white people valid? Are conservatives valid or reactionaries valid or traditionalist Christians valid? Like, eh, probably not. Like, we've got a lot of questions. Like, who, who isn't valid? What do they even mean by they're valid? What means that you're part of the ruling coalition, right? It, when, when you say someone is valid inside progressive circles, what that means is you are part of the coalition of people that is ruling and we have your back and we're going to make sure that you're not screwed over. It's social and emotional patronage. And if you take a group that feels like it's protected and you toss them to the wolves, you destroy their professional class. 
uh, you consign them to being entirely contained in, in drug riddled ghettos. Uh, they have they they will be angry, and in some sense, uh, they have every right to be angry as humans. And something is going to be needed to address those circumstances. That's right. Uh, let's see. The Bryce is right says, "Great stream, fellas. Dave, can we expect a Fiddler's Green stream from you soon? They always make my workday much more pleasant and easier to get through." Well, I think I might have stolen a Fiddler's Green stream from you guys tonight, Dave. <laughs> Dave's here instead of over there on Tuesday, but uh, uh, I, I I made a resolution to myself that I would write more this year. Uh, but I do want to get back to doing the live streams. Uh, I don't know, I don't know if this is appropriate to talk about on your channel, but I wouldn't be the only one who's noticed a huge decline in political YouTube and how videos have performed. Uh, I feel like we are being throttled on the more political side but so the video essays especially are just getting nuked from orbit the live yeah. streams still do fine but the yeah it's 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 sad because you came up doing these video essays that's always was my favorite stuff from you that was my you know favorite stuff to make and i'm still making them no matter what because i'm writing a column every week no matter what but mm -hmm. it, it gets harder and harder because yeah i think it's very clear that the the algorithm is not blessing that content I, I, I made two resolutions. I would make uh, the two resolutions where I'd write more. I, I need to, I'll do the podcast live stream as well. But I also wanted to just do a few like actual honest to God video essays. Not like I wrote an article and I'm just reading it to the screen, but actually do video essays like people used to do them mm -hmm. in, in sort of the 2016 style and just see what would happen. Because I know, I know it's going to get killed by the algorithm, but that was. Some of those old video essays from back in the day, you know, those were, they were their own kind of thing, right? I agree. It's a, a lost form, to be sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Johan Richardson says, Surely, once having received the gift of the Lord's salvation, the unequal will be filled with humility and gratitude as sinners saved by grace, and then be at peace with whatever turns out to be their merit-derived uh, station. Yeah, uh, that, that would... That would be great, but unfortunately, I don't think that's human nature, even, oh, even that, after. <laughs> that happens for very short periods of time in my own life, and then I go back to being selfish and yes. and, and, and and lazy again. You know, I, I feel like every time I come out of confession, I get a good three hours of being in this state before I revert to my old ways. I mean, like, this is the dream of Sir Thomas More to have a country that can be ruled by prayers, Johan, and it's it's my dream as well. But uh, this is a dream that has to be the project of, of very small places and for very short periods of time and and held up by by strength and work and endurance. It, it cannot be generated by an algorithm. It cannot be generated by, you know, 10, 10 weird amendments that solve politics now and forever the, the way that some of the liberals imply, right? In, in real human societies, you have to apply constant effort. It's like holding a muscle to get this level of virtue. And, and you're always going to slip. Absolutely. Glow in the Dark says, more virtue in helping your community than running off to get a good paying job. To plant trees you will not benefit from is virtuous. It's very true, but it's also much easier to say than to do, right? It's it's very, especially we, we've, we've kind of seen that when people have the option uh, that they, they tend to choose the other direction. And so I think there's just unfortunate realities about kind of the modern condition that will, will feed into that. But I think there's a, there is a lesson uh, there to be sure that we are learning collectively uh, about, about community and, and uh, 
being being willing to sacrifice for it. Uh, we've also set up our economy so that if you're not being kind of a if you're not playing into the global economy, you're kind. I mean, you can. You, there's ways you can kind of be very, very clever and game the system, so that you can still live a comfortable middle class life and you can make it, it locally. But you know, we've set up this economy to for the last fifty years. We've been punishing people who have made that decision. Right. It's not like we all just decided to like go to the big city. I mean, some people decided to go to the big city so they could live sex in the city lifestyle. But most people looked at their hometown and said the people who stay around here end up being, you know, end up having their lives not go well and not being, you know, not having any opportunities. And I don't want that. I want something that, that looks more like what my parents had and what my parents had cannot be achieved by staying here. And so I, I can't blame people for following incentives that were perversely introduced to their society, whether they're you know black or white. You know we have to have a lot of sympathy for that. Agreed. And Life of Brian here says Dwayne Alessandro Herbert uh, Mountain Dew Camacho, uh, twenty twenty eight. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you. I, I only got the last three story. names. Yeah, I only got the last three names. <laughs> I'm glad we we uh, properly attributed uh, to his greatness. Uh, Simplar here says, just want to recommend Charles Paul Miner's third thesis on Roman institutions and why they didn't defend the German border at the end. Dave heard my little speech on Gaul's decline. Yeah, I can't I say I'm familiar that with that speech. one. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, yeah, this was a, um, just to show our own projects here. Uh, everyone who's interested in community building should look into a project called Basket Weaving. You can DM me about it. And uh, in our basket weaving groups, we, we periodically hold, uh, Usually it's smaller events, but every now and again, it's like banquets where we have uh, talks. It's sort of like mini conferences a little bit. And uh, uh, the Templar delivered a very good speech about uh, decline in the Roman Empire and what it means to live in sort of winter civilization. I really enjoyed it. Nice. King Pill says, uh, nothing to add. Just wanted to thank you guys for this great convo. Well, thank you, man. I got to uh, go on King Pill's uh, show here recently. I was a guest on there uh in the last week or so so make sure to go check out his show that was a lot of fun having that conversation all right guys well we're gonna go ahead and wrap this up thank you everyone for joining me i know it's later than usual but i knew it would be worth it please if this is your first time on the channel go ahead and subscribe go ahead and hit your notifications so you'll know if we go live late and of course if you would like to get these broadcasts as podcasts Make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the Aura McIntyre Show on your favorite podcast platform. When you do, make sure to leave that five-star rating. It really helps with the algorithm. And of course, if you would like to go ahead and pre-order The Total State, you can do that. You can do it on Amazon. You can do it at Barnes & Nobles, Target, Books a Million, wherever you find your books, you can probably go ahead and pre-order it there. Buy book, buy book, buy book. All right, guys. Thank you for coming by. And as always, I will talk to you next time.